Good morning, everyone. Take this is 14. the Machination Log. My name is David Paddock. To my left, I have Rylan Riley. Just in case that we don't we don't include that first part. To his left, we have uh, Lewis Wiedemann, who's not on a mic. <laughs> and uh, to his like. I don't know, like forward and right a little bit. Two is two o'clock, let's call it. Uh, we got Nicole. I am here. Bound. Ready to get wet and slippery with Bound. Absolutely. Jesus. I, and I have appropriate microphone discipline for this discussion. So we're about to discuss what may be the dampest noir of all time. You probably haven't heard of it. I sure as hell had not heard of it, which is my benchmark for whether other people have heard of it, of course. Uh, the Wachowskis... <laughs> wrote the screenplay for a movie called Assassins before this, but yes. this was their directorial debut. Uh, this is when the Wachowskis, who you now know for The Matrix and, more importantly, Speed Racer, uh, <laughs> this is what they did before that. And um, I would say this is not of a piece necessarily with the other things they made. In fact, they sort of took a break to do things like The Matrix and are on their way back to it. We're not going to cover their... They're, the whole arc? Yeah, we're not going to cover the Wachowski starship. Getting, yeah, because they're getting closer to where they were in this, like now with stuff like Sense8. Um, There's yeah. a lot of horseshoe theory going on in their lives, basically. Like, not in... I mean, horseshoe theory is a great term because it literally means whatever you need it to as long as it's <laughs> sort of like <laughs> loop As long as something as long generally as the arc. ends yeah. up in the starting yeah. position. Yeah, that's, gotcha. that's yeah. basically what horseshoe theory is. Excellent. And in this case, it's like temporal and temperamental because this is an aggressively lesbian film. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bound is. And they're now getting back to their roots, basically. They, yeah, they are. Because if you... Actually, if you watch the uh, two-and-a-half-hour third season finale of Sense8, like your horseshoe comes completely around because you have a series that you have a ton of crime drama uh, like loaded on the front end and then lots of gender fluid, like gender fluid sex on the back end that has like great feel, but there's not enough of it. And they, they don't cross over much. And much like this movie, it takes place in two very distinct parts. The first part is a romance between Corky, the newly hired handywoman at said condo building, and Violet, the mob boss girlfriend, um, (laughs) you know, Caesar and his, you know, like, mafia family nonsense. And so the beginning is, the beginning of this movie is is a romance between Corky and Violet. Played respectively by Gina Gershon and Jennifer Tilly. And this is... This is a this part of the movie is really really good, but then it transitions into the crime noir thriller part, and it's a very abrupt transition, like between these two, yeah, these so this, two sections of this movie. This thing's like an hour forty eight with credits, and you figure like the first thirty minutes are the are, is the relationship between the two main characters of Jennifer and it's Tilly a really and, and the relationship part's really strong in this, yeah. and we can get more into details. And then the but last we're just hour doing a breakdown yeah the last hour 10 or so is the whole crime drama that then i mean incorporates but doesn't exclusively focus on the connection between these two women as they go through this ordeal in the later film it is it is interesting because the wakowskis did very much want to make a noir film so it's not like they were trying to sneak the lesbianism into a noir although when they were shopping this around um People wanted them to just like switch it out with a dude and yeah, call executives it a day. wanted Gina Gershon to be a guy full on as opposed to only in spirit, and um, they 
didn't settle for that. Yeah, they held the movie, line. But the and movie would kind of mention. just like fall in. Like I, I don't, I don't think we'd be talking about this movie that right movie now. Would suck if if that were the case. I mean, if if this movie was just every other noir, yeah. Like with how a twist, are you gonna? Yeah, how are you gonna make like the the romance part interesting it, in this for it, the first half hour? It wouldn't stand out at all. No. I mean, it's one of the it's it's that weird argument about um, we just have remaking. The co- we just have the Coen Brothers debut film all over again. Is what you have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and this yeah. this this goes into and uh, there's there's a lot of different angles to take with this and maybe it's worth exploring later on but um they remade both the ghostbusters and now oceans 11 with an all-female cast and a lot of people there was a lot of hemming and hawing about that and i don't think it was exclusively sexist there were there are weird bones to pick with doing that but the one thing you shouldn't do is remake the ghostbusters or oceans 11 with a bunch of guys there's no reason to make that movie and bound would have been a version of that movie it would have just been the Kowski's take on what a noir caper looks like and that part of the movie is not as good it's really not like the the relationship portion of this movie is where this movie shines and unfortunately and we've discussed this as we've looked at kind of like the the arc of Wachowski's storytelling unfortunately like they can they get these they can get these good aesthetics and relationships between uh between characters but their storytelling still i think has always like held them back just a little bit and i it, it's here too like this is a perfectly lovely movie but it's <laughs> it, you know it's it's the aesthetic feel of the relationship where this movie really shines it's not in it's storytelling. All right. So I, I disagree a little bit. I like the way in which we are revealed the, to the character of like Violet, especially mm-hmm. as like, um, because I would make the argument that she is the, like, you know, the emotional vector of this film, yeah. right? Like everything kind of revolves around Violet's decisions and motivations. And I think those, what's strong about this and which makes the matrix a little bit depressing is the way in which the, the clarity of the motivate of the emotional and and motivations between Gina Gershon and especially Jennifer Tilly Violet's character is presented here, right? Like, um, where was all of this energy when they were casting Trinity? Yeah, exactly. yeah. Well, that's what I mean. Like, they they Noted. they've got like they can do this. I don't know why they haven't been able to like incorporate it more. Like, where was these sparks between Trixie and Speed? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> pun no, aside, no. But then, but then also too, like um, a relationship that appeared to be as emotionally to have emotional depth of speed with his mother, right? If I'm making, if I'm yeah. making yeah. my view on this thing, right? Like this is the kind of, that's what it makes them rather frustrating, right? It frustrates me with speed racer. It frustrates me now with the matrix. Mm-hmm. I've not seen sense eight, so I can't speak to that, to that, um, to their uh, work on that. How about uh, cloud Atlas? Yeah. Cloud Atlas and, and Jupiter ascending lack these moments as well. And when they do their, their small integration, right? Like it seems like they don't want to make a movie based on, on human characteristics and human relationships, right? Like they, they, they like the hook. They like the, I mean, hell what's going on in sensate or the matrix. It's not supernatural, but they, they like the kind of like super reality twist on everything that they can put on that. And I would like to see them mature and make a movie about like, you know, exclusively about emphasizing human emotions and relationships. I think they have a fucking real talent for this. Um, And it's disappointing that we don't, that, it unfortunately just becomes like almost tokenism in, in most of their other films as as slaves to the stylistic storytelling that they yeah. also are very good at. And I would like to see that take a backseat and emphasize more in the emotional context of this because I really like 
uh, what they do with Jennifer Tilly and Gina Gershon's character in here. Yeah. Just to get two judgments out of the way. Um, first off, um, how many stars? Oh, one out of one. I've seen this before. I've, I see it again. Yeah, I've been watching this movie periodically since I was 16. I concur. And the other one is uh, Gershon or Tilly. <laughs> I'm Tilly all the way because I'm a straight dude. What the fuck, man? Gershon. Yeah. Gershon. Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I, no fucking contest. Yeah, no, I didn't mean to, if it was supposed to state an answer or not my reasoning. It was just it was just disappointing. I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of Why, who were you, you picking? Wouldn't. What? I said Gershon. Okay. okay. Oh, yeah, very no. good. Come on. Be real. The, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've identified ourselves, uh, how are we doing? How many fucking tillies can there possibly be in this United States slash world? Oh, but they're, well, all, there's not, they're so, all special so, in their own well, way. There's, there's only, there was only like, so since we've been, you know, investigating, you know, homosexual and queer cinema, like all this pride month, you know, yeah, we have put in our hours for pride. We month. have. And so, this movie's cool because it is considered one of the first movies where you have a uh, female homosexual relationship, and but that's not, like, the purpose of the film. Like, it's, you know, it's part of the... But it's not, like, the focus, which... Yes. Um, Fox and His Friends by Fastbinder is considered the first movie where a uh, homosexual relationship was uh, portrayed, was portrayed On like that. On its own terms, almost. And I feel like... It's really it's it's really crazy to me because I mean this movie was in '96 and I mean that's not that long ago but it took film kind of that long to get to that point with uh, lesbian uh, relationships mm-hmm. and I feel like we still haven't gotten that much farther with it because I can only think of maybe a handful of films post Bound that even kind of uh, you know like like work uh, like work a solid lesbian relationship that doesn't just devolve into like homicidal murder. Well, but the idea too that the 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 separation from normal sexuality does not need to be the main focus of the dramatic tension of the film. Yeah. Like it's a taken as a given that these two women are attracted to each other, that they feel it inherent within their nature or desires or however we want mm-hmm. to put this. And I don't mean to be political impolitic and stating it this way, but they simply ac- accept who they are in this moment. And the movie does not dwell on that aspect of it. And it's not to say that that like coming out style of, 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 of movie about lesbianism or, or trans or, or gay communities does not have its place. But this movie just simply assumes that like, this is a relationship. Um, we've decided to trust each other and we're women. Mm-hmm. And it's like fucking on with the story. Like it bears no overarching debilitating, you know, emotional exhaustion in, in analyzing that relationship. That's actually one of the interesting things about why I think the noir section of this flounders by comparison though. I mean, I will grant you, um, Aside from the, the degree to which the initial scene felt very much like a, a generic porno setup, I mean, it was literally <laughs> a plumber shows up, and uh, it, yeah, and it does have it does have a very kind of like soft core premise when we get yeah. well, when we get kicking. And Jennifer Tilly can't talk any other way, so yeah, yeah. So yeah, she she speaks with everyone, whether she's buying gasoline or actually trying to seduce someone. She does sound like she's trying to seduce you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But I would say, and I don't, I know this is kind of strange. But that is, that is like her thing. Like that, that is, that is what 
gets her through her life. Well, and uh, okay, yeah, I, I will. Yeah. Yeah, well, she's I'm, the femme. She's the femme fatale character. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm going to table that just for right now for a real quick second. <laughs> okay. But um, I would Poor like. Penitent. Yeah. No, I know because it's worthy for discussion. But then I would say too that so I find the film rather playful in that instincts, right? Like it takes these approaches and uh, it, um, you know. It doesn't dwell on judgment of these things, whereas today, if bringing up these topics oftentimes require, oftentimes necessitate the kind of like in-depth discussion or 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 analysis of like why someone is doing this, right? Like placing its social context into place. Like this film instead takes the tropes and takes and takes the um, the kind of like standard aesthetic practices of the film noir thriller mm-hmm. and then just tweaks them a little bit and like has fun doing it. Oh, right? Yeah. Like that's the key break. Was that like. This I find this film to be more playful, whereas I find the the Matrix to be a little bit too serious and morose, and that's what's kind of fun about. And it's funny, and and the relationships suffer in Matrix, I think, because of that. Like they don't feel real, like the relationships in this. Well, and and in a sense, too, it like I think, and I know this might be disagreeable to some people who see this film today from that community, but that the fact that it doesn't dwell on the fact that it needs to explain its lesbianism in any sort of social context, like just liberates itself to be just about them, right? Just about two individuals rather than some sort of political act of being a lesbian in 1996. And I find that to be like rather enjoyable. And I think it's one of the reasons why this movie's good. I think so. And why it like lasts as long as it does, because it's like, you know, there are a lot of like, and not to be, to say that that's not necessary, but there's a lot of gay cinema from the 90s that isn't on Netflix, and yet this is. Okay. And I think there's okay. a reason for that, not just because of the fame their actors achieved afterwards, right? Like, people, like, want to and enjoy seeing this. That's sort of what makes the noir section of this film strange, mm-hmm. in some sense, or I guess not necessarily strange, but banal uh, to a degree, is that the executives were not wrong. They could have almost just plugged a guy into this story and... They wouldn't have to have rewritten all that much of it. No. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have to have rewritten, ironically, a couple of jokes. Um, like when <laughs> yeah. when Caesar walks in on Violet and Corky uh, the first time and he thinks he's a guy, uh, that scene would probably have to be scrapped. But yeah. um, And it's one of my favorite scenes in the film. Yeah, okay. Uh, which it is, that is one of the, that is one of the greater examples of just to bring the, uh, the elephant term into the room of the, uh, the blindness of the patriarchy to these. Um, <laughs> There's tons to, of coded patriarchy to, to the premises. things going on in this. Yeah, no, that I, I figured we might as well pop that. So okay. it's going to, it's going to happen. Um, the, the degree to which it does not phase Caesar that Violet is having an affair as long as it's with a woman. Yeah. <laughs> says, it speaks volumes about the character of those relationships to Caesar himself. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if that had been one of his mob buddies or even just a dirtbag off the street, um, that would have besmirched his character. But the fact that his partner um, is bisexual at a minimum doesn't seem to face him at all. No. Right? Um, and that's not a form of acceptance. That's a form of the way that men pathologically think about this kind of thing. And um, the degree to which that, Ryan, like you were saying, f- we feel the need to explain that right. now in a way we didn't used to. Um, and I'm going to bring up the other, um, not recurring, but, um, well, I guess it's recurring now. Call, you, call Me By Your Name mm-hmm. does this aggressively in that film. It doesn't merely attempt to show 
a homosexual relationship or homo romantic relationship, it feels the need to justify. It, 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 and feel, it feels the need to wonder how this is possible yeah. with a straight person, and that is. I mean, I, I hate the word homophobic because it basically homophobic and transphobic in those words basically don't mean anything anymore. But in in the most generic sense, that is a wariness about the freedom of someone's romantic or sexual facility and liberation that is just it it's more of a problem today than it was in this movie. It, that is that is weird in a way because you think we would have gotten more like like I said, I I feel like we would have we would have been able to like expound on this. Like, I feel like there should be like other movies that have this kind of like feel, but there's, there's not like this feels more progressive than the stuff coming out now. I mean, I mean they have, there are more instances of it than there I used mean, to there's be, more but, instances, but, the problem, sure, but, but the problem is there are so many more queer characters, not there being more queer characters, not a problem, but the, um, the, the fact that there are more mean that more of them dwell on this question, which means it, the, the most frustrating conclusion to draw about this, um, if you're being cynical and pessimistic about it, as opposed to optimistic where you're, one, where you're trying to explain to the cisgendered community um, the ins and outs of this kind of stuff, you take the more cynical line, which unfortunately I think is the more realistic one, um, you feel the need to justify yourself okay. in a way that the more avant-garde among us, uh, such as the Wachowskis and Fastbinder, felt no need to because they already understood their position on the sidelines of society. And we're not in that position anymore. Yeah, we gotta realize who are, who you're like, you know, talking to to a certain extent. And if you didn't if you couldn't pre if you couldn't pre-select your audience, you know, like this is the problem that filmmakers have, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't pre-select your audience. So you well, I mean to a certain extent, right? But, um, <laughs> Mark, the fact, yeah, but the idea that you would make, like, so when I was working on the podcast, right, like, the problem is, is that, like, you know, who am I writing for, right? Like, am I writing for people with, like, a baseline of knowledge that would detract anyone who had no establishment in my topic would just turn away from it immediately, right? And then I would only get the people who had, a, you know, a certain base of knowledge to come into it. And when you're making a film like this, right, like, you know, to, to ignore the question of context, right? To like, you know, to so make it so, I mean, because I mean, I don't mean to emphasize this, right? But like the film just does not dwell on it in the slightest. Like it just like moves, it moves from the introduction scene to the potential seduction. I mean, there's like, okay, so there's the meeting on the, uh, there's the meeting in the, in the elevator where we have this like love at first sight to open up this to potential discussion as well. Um, and then we have the, uh, she brings her coffee when yeah. she's working because she wakes her up early. And then she feigns an excuse to come see her by claiming potentially that Tilly's yeah. character dropped an earring. In the, yeah, in the, Violet, uh, Violet manipulates a situation to get Corky to come over. Specifically to seduce her into sexual activity. Yeah. Okay, cool. Right. So like. No, like, this has about as much foreplay as a porno. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this all happens within 12 minutes of the film. Yeah. yeah. And the problem is, is that like, um, so. uh like one night stands are a thing, you know, like, and they're perfectly fucking wonderful, right? Mm -hmm. Like as long as we take them on their own terms, there's um, a perfect recognition that that is fucking engaging and fun and stimulating in its own way. But then when we approach it from how like we get it portrayed to us in cinema, which is like, or in, in literature and humanities in general is like love at first sight. Right. Suddenly it like becomes something a little bit more, right? Like it becomes something almost like commodified within our own culture that like, you know, falling in love um, on first sight happens like routinely, right? Mm -hmm. Like what if you only got one falling in love 
uh, on first sight once in your life. Like, you'd better make it count at that point. Well, and even more egregious, the only archetype that we have, at least in the West, for people who do one-night stands is the slut. Mm-hmm. The player. Like okay. that's those are those are your options. If you're the kind of person who does that, um, romance and sex. I'm writing an essay about this right now, um, so this is very much on my mind. Okay, the, oh, I'm glad. The, uh, let's, so let's I mean, the it. the similarities between romance and sex are um, used as an excuse to essentially preclude the differences in right. Hollywood. If you are going to sleep with someone, you have to be romantically interested in them okay. because we don't have any way to code. You, yeah. Unless that is basically a derogation of your personality and character. Well, but what is like? How have you run in, into characters like Casanova or something? Right, where like seduction or I guess players. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's what that's. It's, you're one or the other, and yeah. for a while that was masculine and feminine coded. Oh, uh, okay, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> for a long while, so that was the I'm case. Out of my, I'm so out of my depth with the with the current dating trends. That's embarrassing. What. That's that's not a current thing. That's been happening since the 40s, 50s. I take that back. That's been happening since the 1700s. I had no idea I was so Victorian in my sexual desires. But <laughs> this is apparently what I've self-discovered on this podcast. Look, it's complicated. Look, and men men, queer women culture women. is not that great at it either, honestly. Well, um, we're all fumbling in the dark, and luckily that's a it's an enjoyable practice with the ones you're attracted to. But regardless, <laughs> I just want to emphasize that this movie is a very wet pulsating film and uh, when we get into the film noir and emotional aspects right the, the film has this emotional arc that I find very satisfying and enjoyable in a way that I find there are other movies lacking but when we want to talk about this the main focus of this film it is the stylistic choices in which it reveals the action and dramatic tension with the basically the the money heist sequence uh, for the hour and ten afterwards yeah right? so basically so what's happening so we've got Violet and Corky and because we don't have you know, we don't have a, a, a real nuclear family for these lesbians to destroy and, right. and break down. Because <laughs> you've, you've mentioned that this is like a historical precedent. In, yeah, in, this okay. is. This is. Um, we've got the Look, metaphorical. The, the symbolism of that is so on the nose, it's painful. And then, So instead we have, we have the mafia family, because that is the family that all these people are part of. And, mm-hmm. you know, Violet and Corky are, are now going to have to, you know, blow giant hole in this mafia family so that they can escape the patriarchy and go and live the lives that they want to live. Right. Yeah. Like liberate themselves yeah, almost. Right? Yeah. Like, and of course, like you mentioned previously that like other hist, like, um, what's, uh, What's the Russ Meyer one where all the lesbian, all the women are running around uh, faster pussycat kill kill. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. like those kind of things is where you mentioned. But those, are, ju- those yeah. are just camp movies. Like this is actually like real cinema. Cause then, you know, like that's, that's another thing is like what, you know, a lot of this stuff was, was portrayed, you know, very campy and kind of midnight movie like, and you know, but when they this- do so, you mentioned that like, okay. So my favorite one is the, um, is the feminine jail, uh, is the female oh. jail lesbian story. Have you seen these things? Oh, no. yeah. There's a oh whole subsection of 70s cult films about women in prison, and they're excellent. Yeah, we should. We should I mean, if we, we were should. going to, like, you know, just extend this and make this the pride year. I recommend, I highly recommend The Big Bird Cage. Okay, so we might do that next. But, like, <laughs> so, but then, like, the, like, the jailhouse lesbian drama. Oh, that's a great name. Oh, that's great. And then, but then also the. Oh, that's good. The, 
the hyper violent, uh, ultra violent, yes, you know, the ultra yes. violent lesbian um, tirade, which is best represented by Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and Thelma and Louise, right? Like women going out and and there's also there's a weird '70s movie with Shelley Winters called like whatever it's Shelley Winters and Debbie Reynolds, and it's called Whatever Happened to Helen? And there are these two women that live together. But, like, Shelley Winters, it, you know, because it's all coded because they, it doesn't actually, like, imply that they're lesbian. But she's, like, she basically was married, but she, like, killed her whole family yeah, and stuff like that. Yeah, she keeps inserting her fingers into cannolis. Yeah, and, you know, so, like, everything was, like, coded real heavily like that. So, Not that this movie is light on the coding. No, no this is, yeah, this is, too. But at least, like, well, you know, like, they, they actually come out and, like, you know, show, like, the romance. Like, it's not just, like, a repressed fucking, you know, hom- uh, homicidal, like, maniac, uh, you know, trying to express themselves in a society that they cannot be open in. Yeah, no, they're like, fuck it, let, like, let's go at this. Yeah, let's see what we're happens. gonna come up with a fucking plan, and yeah. we are gonna, like, liberate ourselves from this patriarchy. Well, and that, that is the weird thing, is the, the recoding and symbolism, the repression, um, since it's completely absent from the actual romance, is brought back in in the form of a heist. Yes. In the form of a deception in order to get out. Um, which I didn't think about hard enough before saying that, so I don't really have a <laughs> poignant thing to say about no, it. But I, but that's the replacement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and once again, like I think that not expecting some sort of big social treatise from this film is the best way to approach it, right? Like, there's no sense that this that like we have to take some sort of like like I'm going to gain like a deep understanding of lesbian relationships by watching this film, and it, the film doesn't doesn't by ignoring that question, doesn't pretend to provide that answer. No. Yeah. And in that sense, like, it doesn't have to. Like, for the love of God, not every time this is represented in any sort of media, does it have to just bear the weight of representing every viewpoint of the possibility of the of its existence? It's just like, take me on my own terms. And through a genre piece, doesn't require, you know, all the, all the other answers to those questions that of like motivation and how we're going to represent this in its societal context, all that just gets taken over by a genre piece of film noir, right? Mm-hmm. A, a heist caper. Yeah. Like, like just, I said, it, it replaces, you know, your metaphysical family part. And then, you know, you've got to work within that. It's got yeah. winks and nods. Yeah. Totally. And like, but that's the thing. It's like, it's fun. Like the matrix was like the best part of the matrix is when anybody's having fun. Yeah. And like, nobody's having f- like, Oh my God. Like people need to be having more fun with this film. And what you also know a is a movie everybody's having fun in, but it's time, the Ryan. best part of Speed Racer. It, like that movie is just fun, like straight <laughs> start, start to bottom. And like you know, while too much fun is obviously not enough to to build a cake with, like <laughs> goddamn, like it, like it has a balance to it. And I've got to say that like Bound is like really lift up for me. Like I've uh, saw this film and approached this film in a way. It it's like it might be my second favorite film by them, right? Like first being Speed Racer, and so. Like, this is, like, very, very, like, fun to kind of, like, come back to in a way. Because I haven't seen this movie in 12 and it years. Is, it is a very... 12 years. Yeah, it, and I mean, it's a well-crafted film noir. It does not look like a first try. Dude, it is tight. I mean, we've been bagging on their storytelling abilities for this whole podcast thing. This film is fucking tight as storytelling No, this wise. might be some of their best, I mean, storytelling just in, in yeah, in, like, the tightness of the uh, the twists and turns. Because, I mean, this this story is is all about manipulation mm-hmm. and now Corky and Violet when they form this relationship even though there is there's like the funny thing where it's like they make love and then they immediately start bickering but they they decide that they're gonna go in this and that they're gonna fucking trust each other Absolutely. and and the whole rest of the the sequence once the noir part picks up 
They're just games of manipulation between characters because the situation keeps escalating every time something wrong happens. And then, you know, the characters are just constantly in this game of manipulation until someone ends. And it it's it's approached very tightly. It, yes. Like, it's, it is crafted really well. Like, Again, my my criticism of their storytelling, I, I feel like I've been Which, oh, yeah, specific no, this about is this, is, it, yeah. is is that they suck at writing dialogue. I'm yeah. I'm actually I, I've been fine with the storytelling across the board. Um, the uh, that there are editing problems, sure. Uh, the other two movies could be shorter, and part of the reason this movie's storytelling is as good as it is is probably because it's short. Mm. Um, yeah, an hour forty two, forty five, or something. Right? Something like, like that. Boom, boom, boom. No, it's it's just about at our gold standard. Um, and that helps a lot. And the, but to be fair, um, I feel the need to knock it for this at least a little bit. It's following a template. The other two movies we reviewed are not. That is uh, true. The Matrix is, for all of its flaws, is a borderline unique film. Like that, that film has precedence, but it has no template. This is, uh, and then Speed Racer is its own can of yeah, bees. Yeah. yeah, Speed Racer is its own. It's just like its own anomaly. That is such a fever dream of a movie, man. There is nothing like it, at Dude, least as far as I've found. Yeah, no, I, I mean, that, like in the weird way too that like fever dreams are their own type of insanity. You know, yeah, like, and 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 uh, anyway, wait, that's that's an odd. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but this but this movie does, aside from the romance at the beginning, and even that part, they can crib to some degree from other from other films. The noir part of it, the majority no, of the film a, is... It is a genre film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah dude. And like You and know how this is going to go. It's liberating. It's fucking... Must, like, working within this established structure, like, your imagination can churn into so different areas. And so... Um, so, Nicole, you've compared this this film to the um, first film of the Coen brothers, which yeah. is Blood Simple. Yes. Which is a movie that is less confident in its themes, uh, in its unique themes and ability, much like The Matrix is a second movie for a reason, right? Like nobody makes The Matrix as their first movie. Yeah. yeah. Big ask and to yet, get someone to fund something like that. And yet this film is is audacious and bold in its use of visual storytelling and its use of stylization and its use of, you know, characterization. Like this thing, this thing has some, this, movie's, this movie has balls. And I've got to tell, I mean, Sp- Speeder Star has the biggest balls of all, but like, like in terms of like the ability to just like absorb a genre and say that I'm going to do this fucker and I'm going to fucking find fun ways to play around with something that is established. Um, it reminds me of another modern director that has in a weird way, never really achieved something as well as they've achieved it at the beginning, which is Danny Boyle. I was going to say that fucking, but the fucking shallow grave. Shallow grave. I think it, it reminds me of that one a lot too, which is another genre piece by a first director that shows amazing amount of, t- of potential, and insight and innovation in their in their storytelling, um, and yet, like man, like never quite makes it. You know, like never, 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 never Kubricks. You know, and so <laughs> like, um, <laughs> so like Kubricking is when you like achieve a sense of individuality of artistic achievement um, unto your own styling, right? Like, when did Kubrick 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 Kubrick? Um, I'd say two thousand two thousand one. That's his first Kubricking. Okay. And then he then and then he Kubricks almost the rest of his career between Clockwork Orange, The Shining, um, and uh, Full Metal Jacket. I think those are all masterpieces. 
I can't evaluate that. It's been too long since Barry I Linden, watched all those films. Barry Lyndon's fucking tits. I do want to sit through Barry Lyndon all the way. Dude, you got the screen. Like Barry Lyndon, the only way to experience there, there Barry is, at is some point, not to, to segue too much, but since we haven't come up with a direction, um, at some point we are going to have to tackle some epics because there's some epics that like I'm not going to sit down and watch by myself, but like I would like yeah. to maybe get together and all right, try and to the tackle. Pose, all right, so if I can bring up some new business just to keep Robert's rules of yeah. order here, right? Like if I can propose some new business, they are showing the uh, Lawrence of Arabia at the Enzion in November. So I think November would be a good time for epics. Post-Halloween, you know, head into the joyous season of with winter some, with some four-hour movies. I, I feel yeah. like that's right. But, okay, you cool. know, but we can we can continue with our with our yeah, hot queer summer out. if, you know, if that's how yeah, we're going to tackle this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, guys, we're going to keep it steamy this year on the hot queer summer. Anyway, so <laughs> Bound, um, I don't actually know... I mean, what the, else I want to talk about? Well, that's, yeah, there's no need to like, you know, there, I don't, I don't feel like there's need to like continually like go into like all the little like plot fucking twists and turns. You know, watch this movie, give it a watch. It's fun. You know, it's don't watch with your mom. Yeah, but. I mean, it's it's violent. You know, the women are hot. It's well crafted. You know, just just give it a watch. Like it's no skin off your back. You know, I I don't feel like we need to like break down like every twist and turn necessarily to you know. No, because there are there are better examples of this. If we just if we were just looking for a noir caper, there are other films to point to, and this movie was inspired by those films. As yeah. long as you're okay with watching movies made before the '90s, um, which I guess is an ask for some people now. But um, oh, is it? I don't know. No, it seems like it. Can I talk about something? Yeah, I like this movie, and I like <laughs> 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 so what I also like is. Um, so there are several moments in the film, right, when, when the tension rises dramatically and uh, the action is driven by specific events. Um, the weird way all right, – so have you guys ever been in like an – we've been – we've been – I've Nicole, been in accidents. Yeah, Nicole and I have been in an accident together. Have you ever been, had like any sort of like, you know, an amazing moment where adrenaline dump happens afterwards? You've been in a situation like that? Um. I'm going to say yes instead of attempting to meander and figure out exactly what you mean. Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense of in a moment where danger um, happens and you have like a severe adrenaline dump and the like the way that you feel afterwards. Right. Because like being in an accident is both like hyper real and yet like like amazingly unreliable in the way you remember it. And the when. So, uh, so what I mean by this is that like there are several moments in this film where we are demonstrated through the visual storytelling of the film, right, through the camera work and the and the use of like slow motion techniques of like singular moments of dramatic tension where characters will do something that like is purely driven by complete desperation, and it's what motivates Jennifer Tilly into initiating this whole situation, right? She's mm-hmm. the emotional, you know, not MacGuffin, right? But she's the emotional crux of this and uh, of this film. Um, and once again, in terms of storytelling, since we're going to beat this dead horse, I really like how she explains this to Corky after they've established their sexual relationship together, which is that um, she is the girlfriend of a mob boss who occasionally has to torture people to, to death to get information. Mm-hmm. And this occurs during the film, right? And Gina Gershon is, of course, fixing the apartment next door, so she is privy to all of this disgusting activity that the mob has to do in order to survive. The reason... Jennifer Tilly's character wants to leave her situation and the reason she perpetrates this heist on the on the mob is because she cannot handle 
living in the situation and yet is inevitably trapped by its circumstance. And the the line she says is that we make our own choices. Uh, we make our own decisions, right? Like we make uh, we make our own choices. We pay our own prices. prices. We okay, pay our yeah. own and, prices. And so I I like this idea. I think this is very well thought out. And in the way that when we pro- we think we're progressing in our lives, right, making one step after the other, making logical decision based on a prior plan, you know, one step after the other. Um, you know, in a weird way, we think we're heading somewhere, right? But what if we're actually tunneling into something, right? Like with an expectation that there will be no release on the uh, as a result of our tunneling. In the sense, there is no light on the other side of the. Uh, there is no light on the other side of our journey. Every decision we make leads us to a further constraint on our future options. Well, that's what I mean. Everything that she is gaining from this relationship with Caesar only exists while she stays in this relationship yes. with Caesar. Like, when she walks away, if she just was to walk away from this, like, she doesn't get to bring any she, of this with her. She does not feel convinced that she could just walk away from Caesar because there's the potential risk for her own life. Yeah. And if that just means you walk like, away with... Like, she doesn't have, like, a way to... Like, she's not... Li- she can't, like, liberate herself from this. Well, she can, but the problem is she would do that by finding another Caesar. Well, okay, yeah. And yeah. more importantly, it wouldn't be any any less dangerous for her to walk away with the with only the clothes on her back as it would be to walk away with two million dollars. Yeah. Right? Like mm-hmm. like the, the comparative risk for her leaving with nothing and with two million dollars is mostly the same thing. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. and so this is what she means by paying her own price is that like, you know, a lot of our decisions in our life we don't think we don't make in terms of like thinking that it opens us to more possibilities in the future. Most of us make decisions inevitably moving away from future possibilities and narrowing our future options, right? We become ourselves more fully well, we every keep day. Losing opportunity costs with everything we decide to do. Absolutely. And this like sense that she is like, fuck this. Like, no, like, like I I know I made these decisions and, and step by step they appear each one appeared rational in the sense that I like lived better going with Caesar than I did going before and maybe in an and even in a material sense but if you were sleeping with roaches you know like I mean like not sleeping with roaches is a big step up in the fucking world and if that was the choice she was making moving from this like no matter how nice the roach motel implicit is implicit that she was a stripper or some sort of sex worker sex worker this, yeah then moving with Caesar no not she, even not even before still in a sense, Essentially. yes. But and but to the no, point I, th- where I thought that was made explicit during their bakery. No, session. I okay. So I what? Well, I, it is because that's how she perceives. I mean, yeah, that's there's like a monetary transaction still that's going on. Yeah, I was pretty for this sure that was relationship. And the thing is, she's like she's you know she's aware of it, and she felt like like Caesar fucking should be understanding that this is still just a monetary transaction. The way Caesar reacts to her betrayal, it makes me believe that he felt this was exclusive well because he that's what he wants to believe yes that's not so her deception her deception in sleeping with other men in the mob right because the i mean all right so if you've never seen this right the key plot point revives revolves around the fact that she is sleeping with another person in the mob who is skimming money that caesar discovers and then just moves the story forward right but like my implication was that the implication i took away and i could be wrong about this right but that was that she essentially secured her position within the organization by engaging and forming relationships or alliances with people yeah. to to make sure that if Caesar ever did fucking happen, that she would have someone to go to to protect herself within this family or organization. I did not see it as a kind of like leave the money on the dresser as you leave kind of situation. 
Oh no, I don't think that's necessary. Okay. Um, she, okay. No, but that that's that that's, was what she was before what the, before she joined Caesar, who gave her protection and seeming exclusivity, right? Like you're my whore, mm-hmm. right? Like, and more importantly, the fact, of course, that he like builds some sort of emotional attachment of this only displays his character more than hers. But at the same time, during the, I mean, when I when I say prostitution, I mean in the extended form of it, where it's literal, yeah, where it yeah. is just material payout for sex, and the material payout for sex in this case is the security and affiliation of other mob people. We know that at least three of the mobsters are have feelings for her. Mm-hmm. Caesar, Shelley, and Johnny. Well, but then too that she doesn't... And be- Mickey would also... Sure. Fucking fucking pick up there's, the slack there's no, too. I mean, there's yeah. no indication one yeah. way or the other, I don't think. No, well, but it's I'm, not I'm, just saying, I'm just saying he would also gladly step into this role too if given the option. Probably. You well, know. Okay, so... Right, so... Um, That's, I, that is prostitution to me. Like, okay. That, that, that is not a romantic relationship. But, you know, being in a world of political science, I'm generally attuned to the way that public opinion is adjusted to these types of things. And generally speaking, I think we're more open to the idea in which she presents in, 20, in 1996 is that she's, she's good at having sex with people. Yeah. And that is, like, a talent, mm-hmm. right? Like, always has been. And the fact that we're, like, a, maybe opening up to the fact that that might be a legitimate talent... Like, and I want to emphasize this, like a legitimate talent. Like this could be like people, something that you were good at and could convince others that you were good for them in doing it. Um, She just like, she says that like, and even says it in the movie, right? This is what, this is what I do. This is what I'm good at. And it was what I make my living doing. And this is, and in this world there, once again, you know, starting off this way, moving down this path the next the the stage at which we see her transition is this like Caesar stage where you you know she engages with someone who is relatively high up in the mafia who is powerful right like while not the boss is certainly well, see, but see I actually did want to pick on a little bit I mean of she's not, I mean, she is not and let me just clarify yeah. this in terms of the world of prostitution she is not a streetwalker yeah no yeah right she does not she gets to she, no, she is she selects, is well tended to no, she selects her clients she's the jennifer tilly of prostitutes <laughs> okay um, touche but no on. i just i i, Moving I was, on. no i i understand that what i said was ambiguous but no it it is that she is she is doing sex for a for an entirely material reason yeah and it's I, she makes it perfectly clear she doesn't enjoy it yeah, she, she, if it, nothing it's, else. it's that she's good at it it doesn't have to yeah. do with enjoyment it's it's a job. Yeah. Like, dude, like prostitution. Yeah. yeah, no, no, it is a yeah. It, <laughs> and like I'm I'm good at it. And the fact that we she builds a life. And let's be frank here, you know, like for the vast majority of like normal Americans, like the, the relationships they cultivate into adulterous ones against their family life are those are those developed at work, right? Like we, yeah. we have our own work families. Mm-hmm. And like she has her work family. Right? Like, and I don't mean that like I only say this to kind of like interject the idea that if we're going to take like you know, harsh gender norms, symbolism with this thing as well. I think this thing works on a more intricate level, right? I think this thing has a kind of emotional resonance within its own context that I find to be partially enlivening of the way in which I perceive this film. I don't see it as a kind of like just base, you know, strict gender norms, you know, almost coming from, like, I think it's, I think it's evolved from that. And I think that by the nineties, we would expect it to be evolved from like, the kind of like classic tropes of early gay cinema to a certain extent. No, I, I agree. It's just that even the scene we're talking about with the bickering is still all in the first 45 minutes of the film. Yes. Well, it, but it carries so much of what the water for... <laughs> no, it, it makes it makes the rest of it... it <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It does... Um, it, the, it, 
adds flavor to the rest of the film. Yes. It's the problem is that it is just it it is just flair at that point. Because you really you really could replace Corky with a guy without changing the um dialogue or the name by about forty five minutes in the film. I agree. But not only but okay. But I do want to maybe just make my final point is that the film does make a lot of hay with the questioning of uh, so, for example, one of the things – okay, so several points in the film – in fact, the film starts this way – is Corky, Gina Gershon's character, is mm-hmm. bound <laughs> in a closet and clearly has been assaulted as a result of right, – she's she's in trouble, right? Mm-hmm. And the film, as it lays out the narrative storyline, continually returns to Gina Gershon in the closet. And a lot of what the flashback, usually through audio cues but sometimes through visual cues, is the – way in which Jennifer Tilly is trying to convince Gina Gershon, because Gina Gershon is the skeptical one in this relationship, right? Like, she's like, if you want to pull this off, if you want to steal $2 million, we have to entrust each other. We have to trust each other in a way that we've, that, like, I was burned on earlier, right? We find out she's next con, right? I was burned on trusting someone this much earlier. And you have to trust someone in a way that it's, I don't think you've ever trusted them before. And... So much of the dramatic tension of the film is returning to Gina Gershon in the closet and questioning Jennifer. Uh, the way the film questions this is by having Jennifer Tilly, um, you know, audio dubbed over saying, is that who you think I am? Right. Is that who you, was that what you think I do? Right. So we're led to question the, the trust implicit between them. I think well, because well, well, because it makes it tries to build dramatic tension through that as well. Well, it is because that's, that's what the whole thing's playing on. But you know, like, but given given uh, Jennifer Tilly's you know profession here, I mean she she is a master manipulator for a fucking living. So you know that's a lot to at, it's at a the, lot to put your faith in, especially in someone that you've just met. At the same time, I that is actually maybe more than any other part of the noir element of this film. It's the one that keeps it from being memorable on that half in the second act. Is that I never get the impression that, um, why am I forgetting Jennifer Tilly? I'll just say Jennifer Tilly Violet. We haven't said Violet in like 30 minutes. (laughs) I'm never given the impression that Violet is not desperate in the context of Corky. Mm -hmm. So I'm never given a reason to believe they shouldn't trust each other. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I really don't like that. I think the fact that that relationship aside from the one bickering scene, mm-hmm. is so reliably positive and so reliable, re- literally reliable. Yeah. Um, in a, in a, through, through thick and thin, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. They don't, they'd never question each other other than in a borderline playful they way. Do, well, they, I mean, they, they question themselves a, a few minutes because at, at a few different turns, you know, uh, Corky could have, you know, walked away with the money clean and left Violet behind. And at one point, you know, Violet could have also manipulated the the situation to get Corky out of the picture. You know, so they, they I mean, they, they like, they do like question themselves, but then they do come back to, well, let's fucking trust that this thing's going to work out in the end. When does that happen the starkest? Because I'm... I'm struggling to even remember that. So um, when Violet is going back, so... Corky has the money in the second apartment and she's waiting on the other side of the wall and she's listening to them because, you know, Violet's over talking with Caesar and they're doing their whole transaction, you know, and Corky just sits there and she's like, $2 million, 
that's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing stopping from her from taking that money and just and just leaving and leaving Violet in the apartment to 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 fucking settle the the wreck that would have come from that situation. Yeah. And but, it, then, but it doesn't manifest other than the daydreaming thought. I mean, it's not like she walks toward the money and gives it a good stare or makes a move toward... Like, there are so many gestures they could have made to imply that their trust was actually being tested as opposed to merely entertaining it. Okay, well, and so... Th- it's just... it. I don't know. If okay. if those were there, they were not obvious to me. Yeah, it's 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 just interjected several times throughout the film and it and it does serve as kind of a transition between, you know, Caesar instigated um, you know, emotional, you know, emo, uh, you know, plot turning decision of of Caesar's, right? So like every time Caesar makes a decision escalating the situation, right? The emotional resolve of that are these kind of like, you know, daisy scenes, uh, dazed scenes mm-hmm. between, you know, Gershon having been knocked out, tied up in the closet, you know, transition, right? And we know what we're leading to essentially in that film is when Caesar makes a decision to actually achieve the money, mm-hmm. right? Like as if it will be there or whether it will not be there. And it's not, like I said, it's not the, like, it's what prevents this from being a great movie or the kind of like bizarre kind of like inconsistencies in, in it as well. But at the same time, like I'm just so impressed with the way that this film just drops all the potential baggage that it has to deal with and is able to just, almost distill the kind of details to me that really make the story come alive. Um, so, okay, so maybe to demonstrate this in a little bit clearer sequ- sequences here, right? Like um, when Caesar shoots the mob boss, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is this bizarre, right? Like, you know, like well, the, Caesar, moment, the moment fades, it, the moment fades and slows down for him. Um, cause he's holding the gun on the mob boss. The mob boss is like, Cesare, you're not going to shoot me. You know, like he's like, I'm the boss. You're not going to shoot the boss. Right. And as in the lead up to that moment where he shoots him, it like slows down. And when he shoots him, it's this bizarre stylized way where the, where the mob boss going from 90 degrees, you know, goes, you know, falls like a mannequin. Yeah. Yeah. Falls like a mannequin in the same pose all the way down, completely over stylized, but so confident you can't like hat tip (laughs) to the Coens knowing where that stylization leads to. Wachowski's. Uh, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, no, I mean the Coens in the sense that like the Coens over stylized blood simple Mm -hmm. and then fucking, just you know elevated into the stratosphere or exosphere you know from other filmmakers from i mean that. the exact scene you're talking about is maybe my favorite one in the whole oh film. fucking exactly right it's where it goes which to is 11. no coincidence i mean it shows up in the matrix a handful of times yes, but I mean, it goes it goes to 11 in that moment you know yeah. like it's like no we're gonna hold on to this well there's the the scene when caesar is just standing there contemplating what he's doing mm-hmm. and one of the picture frames in the background ripples shatters yeah from shatters a yeah from a bullet and then um, he just like realizes that he's in this out of this this isn't over yet. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> it's an yeah. like that's that's the kind of thing. And again, that's why Speed Racer is the closest they got to this. That's the kind of movie I want out of them. That plus oh. that plus a fringy interpretation of queer culture that isn't trying to justify itself yes. to the wider world. And they're, well, that's a, they're getting close, but they're not quite there yet. <laughs> so uh, there's several other moments um, in those moments of dramatic tension where we're displayed the kind of like sensory dislocation, right? Like time slows down, noises become echo, you know, normal, normal voice becomes echoes. Um, in those moments, we're revealed to the key motivation for why Violet wants to extricate herself from her situation, which is that um, she tells Corky she wants out, right? She wants to leave the life she's currently given. And the main reason she gives her for her motivation, which we should assume to be true if we believe in the validity of their relationship, is that 
when terrible stuff happened around her, she simply told herself that she wasn't there, right? Mm -hmm. She removed herself from the situation, which is a common technique among people who go through terrible situations, right? Like if you're in the... If you're in the middle of like being shelled by artillery in World War One, like believing you're somewhere else is a perfectly fucking legitimate psychological coping mechanism to de- deliver yourself from that terrible situation, right? And to survive and handle the fact that she was be- around people who were being tortured to death in in her own, you know, in the bathroom where she showers or the, you know, like, in, you know, 10 feet from the place where she sleeps, she told herself that she wasn't actually in the situation and she doesn't want to live there. And the film, like works those moments like it builds that psychological tension by like finding this disassociation between a moment when something extreme and terrible is happening around you to the fact that it doesn't exactly it doesn't feel like and you almost want to separate yourself from the normal way you experience reality and those like two things right like she wants to leave because she's killing off a portion of herself by doing that and then the film shows this to us when caesar goes through these moments of fucking extreme tension and 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 you know violence and and uh, in his everyday life, I find that to be a very, very neat way to like once again the the tightness of this film, the way that things reference each other, and you know the disassociation that people develop when they do terrible things. There's a theme running through this that I think is really well developed. Like it's subtle, but it's there. Well, in see, my I mind. like, and I wanted to bring up another. Like uh, it's one of your favorite scenes in the movie too, David. Sorry, Nicole. Yeah, no, no. I wanted to bring up another point because, like, all the little hierarchy structures are, are really cool in here. And there's one scene I wanted to bring up specifically, is with Caesar because Caesar's, you know, he's not the bi- you know, he's not the big boss. He's still just a kind of like a peon. Like mm-hmm. he he got his thing through, you know, doing a mon- money laundering thing at you know a club that Violet used to work at supposedly. Um, so then there's the mob boss's son, who's a total jackass and is, like, always fucking up situations. Johnny. Good old Johnny. And, you know, of course, there's there's tension here because Caesar thinks that he's a better person than Johnny, but he has to respect Johnny because Johnny has the clout because he's the mob boss's son. So Johnny fucks up a situation and gets blood all over this money, and then Caesar has to bring it back and basically launder and iron and like he's actually and he's like reduced to the like all these women roles within his you know family organization because you know johnny is ahead of him in the hierarchy even though johnny's like a complete fucking asshole that he doesn't respect and i love that whole sequence um of of like the 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 whole having to like lit like literally launder the money after like years of trying to build a position you know figuratively laundering yes. you know money as a job so I, 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 I do like that that little play on on the hierarchy there well and, and visually speaking it's one of the most striking moments it is of the yeah film. it's like, good visually you get, like, too you get you get Ben Franklin's face and then he goes <laughs> and then he goes like horizontal and then it pulls out into into and, and we lose and focus. it's like garland yeah. like all over the like, apartment yeah he's cleaned it and like pasted and he, it up on yeah and he's like in his boxers place. fucking ironing yeah. every single one of them like starching it till it's nice and and he's just he's so pissed because like he's been like reduced to 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 like the, this fucking job yeah but in those moments of like visual storytelling it like is really compelling and, and interesting in those yeah. moments as well oh i gotta say i enjoyed this movie Oh, I even the noir section of this movie was good. Yeah. Um, I just think it would be totally unimportant and forgotten if that's what it was entirely. Yes. Um, one potential plot twist that I considered um, and haven't totally 
figured out how it would have worked, and it, it probably would have made the movie worse on balance. Um, if during the shootout with the boss, the boss, yeah. uh, if Caesar, who we haven't mentioned, and it's too fun not to, um, is played by Cipher from the previous movie. Yes. Joey Pants. Joey Pants. Joey Pants. Uh, Joseph Pants. It's considered his best role. <laughs> yeah. Like pretty universal. Everything I read basically kind of laid it out that this is his best performance. But suppose he gets shot by Johnny and now that Johnny has a thing for Violet and he doesn't know where the money is. Um, it would be a serious rewrite at the end of the film and I understand that she has to kill the patriarchy at the end in order for there to be like that going on. But I... I could imagine a version where you could bullshit your own interpretation where destroying the detached patriarchy is even more symbolic than killing the one I'm you sure, know. I'm sure you could, re, you, you, could, you could rewrite something like that. You would do it. But honestly, I, I think as far as plot twists go, I think I would have... I think there's a lot they could have done with bringing in a borderline dissociated male into the cast at that moment. Because Caesar and Violet have had quite a bit of banter up to this point. Um, and Johnny, while not as charismatic as Joey Pants, um, I don't know. It, it was weird because it seemed like Johnny was a bigger character than, at least he was cast as a bigger character than he ends up being in the film. Because he only shows up like twice. Yeah. Yeah. He just looms. But he's like a point of conflict for Caesar. Yeah. So even though like Johnny doesn't have a big part, he's like, he does move a lot of the action or at least Violet manipulates him into being an action mover. Yeah. Because, He's an instigator. Yeah. He, yeah, he is the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of this film. Absolutely. <laughs> but that's just a what if that I was uh, I was entertaining how that would end up. Because the movie is not over when he shoots the boss. That's just no. the yeah, no, twist. That, yeah, just, yeah, it just begins. Yeah, yeah well, that, yeah, that, that, that's, that's when all the... Tw- yeah, you got another hour to go. That's when all the twists start, <laughs> yeah. start really kind of starting picking up. Yeah, yeah. Th- this movie is front-loaded as hell that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. Um, so do we know what we're going to do between now and November? Gosh, you know, like, well... We- we got Halloween stuff for we got we got to do scary movies again because we haven't done The Wicker Man. But we still got to. But well, yeah, I wanted to do that for Harvest. Oh, very good. We could do that. <laughs> all right, all right. Let's do a little pre-Halloween harvesting. Um, well, I think we should keep the weirdo. Like more wet, hot, long summer. Yeah, because you know I think we got some themes we can kind of develop here. So all right, so I proposed Lynch the last meeting, and that got that seemed to not. We don't seem to be ready for Lynch. So what if we're going to do some like weird psychosexual kind of stuff? Um, I mean, but, to be clear, I'd be totally fine doing Lynch. All right, but I would think maybe like I'm not ready. What for if we did, Okay, what if we did some like Cronenberg, like some like Dead Ringers or something? You know, like okay. like I I mean I'm totally I'm totally okay with uh, Cronenberg. I don't have a problem with him. He feels more Halloweeny though because everything's body horror. But with like, him. but that's the thing. Like Dead Ringers has like you know bizarre pseudo sexuality. It's got like you know like it is very cisgender. Though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think that we could probably do some. I like this Cronenberg. idea of doing a women in prison film. If we want, like, if we want to <laughs> dig, do- if we want to dig into queer roots, see before Bound, really all we have, and since we've done Fast Finder, what what we haven't tackled is the camp genre cuz that's where this stuff all shows all right. up before then. Well, I think I think Cronenberg is a good bridge to that. So I'll I will I will agree that we should do a jailhouse lesbian cinema film in July, but only if Cronenberg can be the link between them. 
Which Cronenberg do you I want? Say, I, dude, to... I recommend Dead Ringers just because it's bonkers enough and it's not as like, you know, boringly modern as like Eastern Promises or History of Violence would be. Oh, see, I yeah, I'm going like which Cronenberg? Like, are we are we doing the the scanners the, the or brood Dead Ringer? Yeah. or are we like like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> all right. So, David, you'll be the arbiter between this, right? How sci-fi do you want your Cronenberg to be? Um. All right. How Stephen Kingy do you want your Cronenberg to be? Uh, just, uh, just a little bit. Just a little bit. The stand was good because in the middle there was a bunch of weird shit going on. Awesome. So you want um, some weird shit. So I want a middle act of Stephen King on either side of the body horror of the stand. Okay. Well, David, tell me this. No, I've not seen one Cronenberg film. Are in my you life. familiar with William S. Burroughs? No. We could do Naked Lunch. We could just pile it all in, two week blitz, Cronenberg, like William a, S. Burroughs, that's, that's Naked like Lunch. A, wow, we were like, I don't oh, know. I mean, all right. no, I, I get it. Like that oh. is that is a totally different that's, direction than I thought we were going to go. Um, that's my vote. <laughs> It's a very Ryan vote. (laughs) (laughs) I'm hijacking the podcast, David. All right, that's fine. We did Speed Racer. (laughs) We get a little license afterwards. I'm I'm done. I don't don't need to. This thing could end tomorrow. Yeah, I don't need to recommend anything else. (laughs) Don't publish this, by the way. This will be for us after this. Nicole. Ryan. Uh, Do you want to, would you, would you got, David, Nicole. I would like to consult the the list of Cronenberg films before we... Here it is. Stereo, Crimes of the Future, Shivers, Rabid, Fast Company, The Brood, Scanners, Videodrome, The Dead Zone, The Fly. I think we should do Videodrome or The (gasps) Brood. (laughs) Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch, M. Butterfly, Crash, Existence. Crash, I wanted to do Crash last week. Okay, I think we should start with Crash because there's lots of... It's like cisgender, but there's weird sex shit, and I think that would be a good transition. Oh, totally. Okay. Crash is hard to watch, but really good in a lot of weird ways. Spider, A History of Violence, Eastern Promises, A Dangerous Method, Cosmopolis, and Maps to the Stars. I've seen slightly more of those than I suspected. So I heard Crash and Naked Lunch. Do we have a third? All right. I will only concede to Crash if you give me Do you not like either, that one? Uh, no, I'm just part, you know, like this is all part. It's the inner capitalist coming out in me. I will only do Crash if I can get Dead Ringers or Naked Lunch as this, as as one of my We already options. counted Naked Lunch. We're picking a third. Oh, fuck yeah. I don't give Let's just do Crash. I don't give a shit. Let's just that's leave it two. For that. Yeah, that's great. We have Crash and Naked Lunch. We oh, need a third. I'm happy with anything. Whatever. To do All right. Whatever. We'll, we'll, I'd say pick we'll, one of the early body horror ones. Yeah, we'll, yeah. we'll figure. We'll figure it That'll out. That'll be later. fun. Like something with uh, or we'll just Sherilyn Fenn or Marilyn we'll Chambers in it. Yeah, either that or we'll just go to straight lesbian jailhouse cinema after. Well, two. I'm I'm liking to that idea too. All right, doing cool. a All right, lesbian so we got cinema. Two. Woo! I'm excited. So we'll we'll oh, do two. Maybe it'll just be a twofer. This is going to be a great July. Are we doing Crash or Naked Lunch first? Nicole called Crash first. I'll go Crash first. I'll go Naked Lunch. Crash and a women in prison movie. You want to go Naked Lunch, Crash, women in prison movie? God, this is getting all over the place. I know this is look. This is some detailed, necessary conversation that our audience wants to hear. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll go literary. (laughs) We'll go bonkers, and then we'll just go camp. 
Okay. All right, so we're getting serious. Sounds like a plan. Yeah, we're getting serious. We're doing Naked Lunch next. Then we're going Crash. Then we're going Lesbians in Prison. I think of, I can think of no finer transition. Sounds well, good. Well, I guess we'll yeah, make it work. I, I agree. We'll make it work. Excellent. We'll make it work. Excellent. Silent consensus. Woo-hoo. Let's get out of this room. Ryan, Nicole. Thank you. Uh-huh. Go watch Bound. It's Amazon it's good Prime stuff. right now. It's, it's wonderful. a good time. Yeah. Team Gershon. <laughs> watch it with the one you love. Good morning, everyone.